Amen. Amen. You have a seat. The Apostle John uh, was 17. He was 17 years old when he began following Jesus. What were you doing when you were 17 years old? I know some of, some of you have to think back a long way. Dude, I can't even remember when I was 17. Others can remember, younger crowd can remember what you were doing when you were 17 years old. But it must seem like by the time he's writing this letter in 1 John that his uh, whole life has uh, gone before him and here he is um, having to look back and, 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 and maybe this happens to you, an older generation, if you just hang with me, and, and maybe you would agree with me, that uh, when you've, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, when you have more days behind you than you do in front of you, uh, that you have a tendency to really look back at your life. And, and, and I can remember sitting with my grandfather and him saying, uh, when he was in his uh, late 70s, he said, man, Jared, that, that life just went by fast. What John must have been experiencing the time that he wrote 1 John, when he was 17 years old, he began to follow Jesus, and that was an interesting experience. In Matthew chapter 4, it says Jesus came to the boat where James and John, they were brothers, where they were working on the family boat. They were fishermen. His dad's name was Zebedee. They were working on the family boat, and all it says is that Jesus came and spoke to them, and John and James left the boat, and his father. That doesn't mean much, right? All right, so he's going to go spend some time with Jesus. But in the Jewish economy, to leave a boat means you were leaving the family business, and you were leaving your father high and dry. And you were leaving your father, you were putting your family in a different place of priority in your life to go and to follow Jesus. That's what John did at the age of 17. And now 60 years later, he's writing this letter, 1 John, to a bunch of, this letter is going to be circulated to a bunch of churches. And I find it interesting that something that John does not do, in his old age, John doesn't sit back and begin to write his memoirs about how great life was and the experience that he has had and, and talking about his 401k and his retirement, what, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's trying to share with the audience that's going to be reading this letter that there are some essentials to the Christian faith, and then he explains what it means to follow Jesus. And, and this letter that's going out to this audience, this audience is vast, it's a very different audience. They're inside of this audience, these churches where this letter is going to go and it's going to be read publicly. In these churches, there are Christians that are assured of their place in the family of God, that they would call themselves children of God, and there's this assurance of faith that they have. But inside that same community, there would be some Christians that aren't really sure of their faith and don't know if they are sealed to the day of redemption, to that time when Jesus Christ returns. There, there are some in his audience that falsely are assured that there are Christians. We shouldn't think that just because everyone's in attendance today that everyone's a Christian. There's some that are falsely assured of that because they prayed a prayer at one time or, or because their parents have always gone to church and so I've always gone to church. When, when John's going to be very clear today, it's about 
being called a child of God, being adopted into his family. And, and then the audience was also made up of those who weren't Christians, those who were on a journey and trying to figure this whole God thing out and how does Jesus Christ fit into this and what does all of that look like. And so John has written this letter to give us some of the essentials, the bare basics of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow, to follow Jesus. Now here's something else that's interesting. Uh, at this point in time when John is writing this, he's the only apostle still alive. Um, all of the other ones uh, have died, and some of them have died brutally. Uh, you know that Peter was crucified upside down. In fact, I, I looked some of these up. Let me, let me just tell you some. James, his brother, was killed by King Agrippa I. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Thomas, <laughs> Thomas was lanced in Persia. Imagine that. Not only that, James, uh, um, besides Thomas being lanced in Persia, James Alpheus, who is another apostle, he was thrown down the temple stairs. He was stoned, and before he died, they took a club and they beat his brains out because he was a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And Jude, Jude was martyred in Persia, that's modern-day Iraq and Iran. John isn't spending his old age reminiscing about, uh, about his life or about stories of his life. He's sharing with us that um, there are some essentials to the Christian faith. And in today's text, John encourages us to abide in Christ. You're going to see that word abide again. He's encouraging us to abide in Christ and to pursue a righteous life. And when we use that phrase, righteous life, we're talking about living rightly. We're not talking about right living. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living rightly. Right living would be, uh, am I eating the right things? And I'm not putting too much chocolate in my body. And, and I'm, am, I, uh, am I getting enough sleep? Am I resting the way that I should be? Am I healthy? Am I exercising? Is my alarm going off? Is that just reminding us? Is that just reminding us that Jimmy Johnson's retiring and, and uh, he's no longer going to be racist? It's just fantastic. Um, wh why, why is he writing this? He's writing it so that we would abide in Christ and pursue living rightly. So if you haven't turned there already, I want you to turn to 1 John, however you do it, whether it's in your Bible or on your phone or something like that. Get to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 28 and 29. Verses 28 and 29, those are transitional verses what we, from what we talked about last week that separates those out, verses 28 and 29, they're, they're abridged, they're transitional verses to everything else in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's a connector. That's what these verses do. And these verses, even though they're transitional verses, they're verses that lead us to a single question today. We're answering one question. What does it look like for someone to be a child of God? How do you know if someone is a child of God? Now, when we ask that question right away, how do you know if someone is a child of God? You might sit there and think, well, I know if I'm a child of God, I know about my relationship with Jesus, but it seems like it would be judging if I were to look at someone else and try to determine whether or not they are a child of God. 
And that would be rightfully so. We have no right to judge that because we believe that God is the only one that can look at the heart. That's what was said about David. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So we, we can't look at a person's heart. But what John's going to show us today is that there should, there should be evidence, there ought to be evidence in your life that you are a child of God and that that would be evident. Evidence ought to be evident. And so we're going to ask that question, and it's a hard question. How do you know if someone else, how do you know if someone is a child of God, and what does that look like in in Scripture? There's two answers right away in uh, verses 28 and 29. How do you you know if someone is a child of God? Two answers are found, and so we're going to give you those two answers, and then that's going to set us up for chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The two answers are actually going to set us up, and then the second answer is going to be played out or explained in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. How do you know if someone is a child of God? Here's the very first answer. They are sure Jesus is coming back. They are sure Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 28. All right, you're in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Remember, John is speaking from this very fatherly, sage, wise, old man stage of his life. And he's saying, now, little children, abide in him. Same as last week, abide, remain. Grammar, present, active, tense. Keep on abiding in Christ. So that when, circle that because it's not if, there's a confidence there that John has, So that when he, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. How do you know if someone is a child of God? They are sure, they are sure that Jesus is coming back. And here's what I've seen over the years of my life. That when we talk about the return of Jesus, it's not talking about if. We, we as believers talk about when and there's a confidence that Jesus is coming back, right? There's a confidence in that? You agree with that? All right, there's a confidence that Jesus is coming back. <clears throat> but I think that oftentimes um, it's the older generation that's really looking forward to that day. Because the younger generation believes that they have their whole life set in front of them. And there's a lot of life left. And there's a lot of things that I want to accomplish. And there's a lot of things I want to do. And there's a career. And there's a marriage. And there's all of this stuff that I want to do. Because this horizontal life is the most important thing that we have. And yet when we get older, the more that we start thinking about the fact that this time on earth is coming to an end. We're trying to process. All right. Do I actually believe that someday Jesus is coming back? I remember when my grandfather passed away, my grandmother said, I can't wait for Jesus to return. I can, Julie's dad, all the time, about the time when we're done communicating or we've been together and they're getting ready to say goodbye, he says, hey, we'll see you again if the Lord tarries. Kind of an odd thing to say, right? But, but it's very churchy. If the Lord tarries. What's he saying? He's saying, if Christ doesn't come back or if he doesn't take me home, his eyes aren't fixed on the horizontal. His eyes are fixed on Jesus, on the fact that Jesus is going to return. 
Question, as a Christ follower, if you are a Christ follower, do you look forward to that moment when Jesus is going to return? Some of you do. That's great. That's fantastic. This is a sign that you are a child of God, that you are looking forward to that moment that Jesus is going to return. And should he tarry and allow me to die, greater is that moment that I die than me sitting in this world. Look at what he says. When he appears. We get our word, our English word, epiphany from that word. What John is telling his audience is that it will be sudden. There's four, maybe five different places in scripture, uh, book of Matthew and Revelation, twice in Matthew, Revelation, I believe it's in James, uh, where um, Jesus says the day of the Lord, and Paul says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, okay? It's going, when Jesus appears, it's going to be sudden. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, uh, Jesus is going to come and it's going to be sudden and you're not going to know about it. We can do all we want. Notice what he doesn't do here. John doesn't give us a day. He doesn't give us a time. He doesn't waste his time with the timing of what's going to happen in this world. When is Jesus going to return? That's not about what it's about. It's the truth that Jesus is going to come back. And we should be looking for that moment when Jesus is going to come back. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That word coming is very particular. It's the idea of a king or a dignitary making his way into a city and all of the city comes to a halt and all of the city comes out and glorifies and honors the king who's coming through the city. Now, this used to happen in the United States. Several years ago, um, when we were living in Michigan, uh, one of the presidents of the United States, I won't tell you who, it's a guy I really like, one of the presidents of the United States happened to show up in a town south of us. I'm like, I am going to go see the president of the United States, a dignitary. And I can tell you there was a crazy amount of pomp and circumstance, car after car after car, secret service after secret service, everyone protecting him. I wasn't allowed to get very close. Maybe they knew about me or something. We need to keep Bartholomew back from him because he'll go nuts. You know? So I had to stay back, and I'm taking pictures, and the pictures are terrible because I'm too far away, but I'm seeing all of this pomp and circumstance for a guy that wants to be protected as the leader of the United States. When Jesus comes back, it's because he's going to protect all of us who know him. Way different. Way different. That's what this coming is all about. How do you know if someone is a child of God? They're looking forward to when Jesus returns. And John doesn't waste time explaining when that will be or what it will look like, just that he's coming. Now, he tells what it will look like in in Revelation. But look at this phrase. We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So when we abide in him, knowing that he is going to return, that gives us confidence. But there will be some, John's warning us here, that there will be some that at that moment when Christ returns will want to shrink in shame. Why is that? Why would there be some who are Christ followers, who are Christians, that would shrink from him? 
Maybe it's because we're not prepared for that moment that we'll stand before Jesus. Maybe it's because we're not living in a way that's been pleasing to the Lord. And that sounds terrible, right? That we would live in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. But uh, our, our family verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9b. So we make it our goal to please him. And the reason why is because the following verses say, For at the judgment seat of Christ we will stand before him and we'll give an account for the things we have or have not done in the body. We're not living for this day. We're living for that day when we stand before Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. You want to be able to stand in confidence before Jesus Christ because you've lived rightly. Because you've lived rightly. Let me give you the second answer. The second reason, or how, how, do you, how do you know if someone is a child of God? Here's the second one. Their practice or their way of life is proof of their birth. I'm not talking about their natural birth. I'm talking about their spiritual birth. You're going to see it in the text. Their practice or their way of life is proof of their birth. In, in other words, the evidence is evident. Verse 29, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure, you may be confident that everyone who practices, who practices righteousness has been, here it is, born of him, born of God. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Now, if you were to pause for a moment and look at verse 29, you could, in the back of your mind, if it's twisting, if it's thinking, you could be thinking what John is saying here is that if you do good works, if you do the right things, if you live righteously, you're clearly born of God. That you could earn that birth, that you could earn that relationship with God. Remember the context. Otherwise, that verse is really scary, that we have to do our very, very, very best to try to get into heaven. And that verse becomes very, very scary because none of us will be able to enter a perfect place. Here's why it's not scary, because of the context. Remember what John is battling? Chapter one, false teachers. Remember who those false teachers are? They are Gnostics. Starts with a G, G is silent. Gnostics, Gnosticism. They believed that you could believe God, live however you wanted, and still be considered born of God. And what John is saying, no, 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 no. The evidence that you are born of God is that you believe that Jesus is coming back and you live your life because you believe Jesus is coming back. That's what verse 29 says. Because he is righteous, know that Jesus is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Because of my understanding of the righteous life of Jesus, the living rightly of Jesus, that he's given me the capacity to do that, it's that relationship with Jesus that makes me want to live rightly. It makes us want to live differently. Remember last week, we're, as Christians, we don't live obnoxiously, right? We live rightly. It's a desire to live rightly. So what John means in verse 29 is that we're practicing living rightly, and that's motivated by our knowledge that Jesus is righteous. So let me put it simply. Only when, only when our good deeds are done in response, only when our good deeds are done in response to a desire to serve Jesus is God pleased. 
Let me say it again. Only when our good deeds are done in response to a desire to serve Jesus is God pleased. Now, it would be really easy to sit here and go, wait a minute, that, that means that God's, God's love for me is conditional. If there are things that I can do to please him and things that I can do to make him not pleased or be displeased with me, then God's love is conditional, right? John's talking to these people as a dad or as a grandpa, as a man who has unconditional love for these people. So let's ask, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you desire to love your child unconditionally, your children unconditionally, your grandchildren unconditionally. Do they ever do anything that's not pleasant? <laughs> does, your love, does your love wane at that moment? I love you a little bit less. You're going to have to earn that love back, okay? This doesn't have anything to do with the great love of God. This has everything to do with how a person acts when they are called a child. And if you are called a child of God, there are actually things that you and I can do and not do that are sinful or wrong that brings displeasure to God. And there are things that you do in your life that bring, that bring him much pleasure. It doesn't, his, his love for you doesn't fade at the mistakes that you make. How incredible is that, that his love for you doesn't fade when mistakes are made. That's what verses uh, 1 through 10, these next 10 verses, are all about. These verses explain the change that comes in a person's life when they become a child of God. We use two really big churchy words when we talk about this change that takes place. In our language today, it's the, it's the word metamorphosis, something that changes from the inside out. A Bible word or a churchy word would be the word transformation, and then from transformation comes this really other big churchy word, sanctification, becoming more like Christ. So these next 10 verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, it explains that change that takes place from the inside out because I know who Jesus is and I know that he is returning and I'm a child of God because I've given him my life and he's coming and he has saved me. My life is changed and should continue to change. It doesn't just change once, it should continue to change. Disney has this down, right? Pinocchio. Wooden marionette changes from the inside out, becomes a boy. Beauty and the Beast, a beast, changes from the inside out, becomes a prince. Princess and the frog, princess kisses the frog, transforms into a prince. Hmm? What was that? Oh, she changes into a frog? Terrible story then. I thought, I thought it transformed him into a prince. So it turned her into really what she is. Most of Disney is a good, uh, is a good option. <laughs> All right. Uh, need a pen. Note to self. Second service. No Disney illustration. Excellent. Let's... Let's just talk about the transformation and we'll keep it biblical, okay? Let's talk about that change that happens. Here's how you know that you're a child of God. Number one, that change comes. When that change comes, it begins with amazement. It begins with amazement. 
Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Man, this, this, this verse should be underlined in your Bibles. I learned it a totally different way. I, I learned it the King James way. There's this word at the beginning of this verse in King James. It says, behold. Paul's, Paul's saying, pay attention. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called the sons of God. And then we did this really cool thing. We made a song out of it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the sons of God. And then we would do it in a round. Would you like to try it? Would you like to practice it? I have a lot of no's. Okay, so we'll pass on that illustration as well this morning. Look at what John is saying. From that moment that you know that you are a child of God, don't lose the awe and amazement of who Jesus is and the love that the Father has given to us unconditionally. We should be amazed that you and I, broken and in our messes, can be called the children of God. What if we were to take pen and paper and begin to write everything we know about the love of God? My favorite verse, they call it a stanza in songs, in a hymn is the second stanza of a hymn that was written by Frederick Lehman. Frederick Lehman came over from Germany, lived in Iowa for a period of time, then moved out west. He listened to a message that was preached by a pastor, and then he wrote these words down, and they became a second verse of the song, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill a pen and every man and woman a scribe by trade if your one and only job was to sit down and write every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Could you sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and have an unending written journal just on the love that God has lavished and poured out on you. If the only thing I could ever write down is God loved me so much to give me his son and to save me from myself, that would be enough. The change comes with amazement. It begins with amazement. Secondly, the change comes as you cherish your adoption. As you cherish your adoption, that, that, that's what this is called. What, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. You actually, in your adoption, you take on the family name. 
You're a child of God. And then he, it's like he puts a stake down in it. He says, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, he said that in his first, he said that in his gospel, the gospel of John. So we're not going to talk about that today. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know exactly what we're going to be other than we will be made in his likeness. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, made like him in his likeness because we shall see him as he is. The, the Christian is in this crazy place of now and yet not yet. We are now Christians and yet we're not everything that we are going to be. There's not a this John's battling against this. Hey, listen, you can be sinlessly perfect on this earth. That was a Gnostic belief, that you can have God and be simply, uh, uh, simply perf- uh, perfect, that sin will, you'll be untouched by sin. And, and, and John is saying, listen, you're not going to be everything that you're supposed to be until that moment that Jesus comes back. And then when you see him face to face, it'll be like, ding, light bulb moment. Now, now I see fully. In fact, Paul said it's like looking in a mirror dimly. But then when I see you face to face, it'll be like new, cherishes, adoption, knowing that you and I are once slaves to our sin and to that lifestyle. I remember that moment. It's been a couple of years ago now, but I've never forgotten that illustration where Pastor Nick stood here and he talked about having this steel beam that goes from here to the ceiling and our sin. We've got this chain connected to our leg and this is our sin and we stay connected to this life of sin and we can't get away from it. And it's not until we give Jesus our lives that we can pull away from that chain. And that sin, that that lifestyle of sin no longer has us by the leg, no longer has us by the throat. We're no longer slaves to sin. You and I are children of God. We've been set free. You're free from your sin. It doesn't have to have a hold on you. Just a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to go on opening night of this, Julie and I went to the movie Harriet. It's the story of Harriet Tubman who saved about 750 slaves through the Underground Railroad. It is an incredible movie. And when I think of myself being saved from slavery to sin and set free, that's the idea that I have in my head of what what it looked like when when those slaves crossed into freedom and this new life that they had. They were no longer slaves to a master that was holding them back and beating them down. That they were set free, being able to be everything that God had created them to be equally That's what he's talking about when we talk about cherishing our adoption. Here's the deal, though. Our salvation doesn't simply rescue us from our sin. Transformation means that Jesus comes in and he, re- re- and he renovates your entire life. And he renovates my entire life. Here's the third thing. The change that comes then desires purity. When that transformation begins in your life, that transformation desires purity. And in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 2 is the very definition of 
hope. We can hope in that day, that confident expectation that God's promises are true. That's the definition of hope. That expectation, confident expectations that God's promises are true. So we put our hope in the return of Jesus. And because we put our hope in Jesus, the natural response to that is verse 3. That we desire to live rightly. To live a pure life. Free from contamination. Uh, uh, And this is used in reference to one's entire life. You can't just compartmentalize. Hey God, I'm going to give you this part of my life, but I'm going to keep back my finances. God, I'm going to give you this part of my life, but I'm going to watch whatever I watch on TV. God, I'm going to give you this part of it. And this isn't earning your way to salvation. And I'm not picking movies and I'm not picking alcohol. I'm not talking about drugs. I'm talking about a person that has their eyes set on Jesus in such a way that they want to and desire to live a life rightly. According to the word of God, not according to a bunch of rules and regulations, you'll be nothing more than a legalist if if that's all you do. And when we begin to understand the unimaginable wonder of the hope that we have in Jesus, we'll want to live pure lives. Now, there's a problem. There's a problem. Our weak commitment to live that kind of life stems from a very dim view of who Jesus is and the fact that he's returning. The reason that we don't celebrate this, the reason that we don't strive for this is because often we're just not committed to remembering who Jesus is and the fact that he's going to return. And I will stand before him one day and I will give an account for the things that I've done in the body of Christ and the things I have not done in the body of Christ. Here's the next thing. Change not only comes and desires purity, but that change, when that change comes, it practices living rightly. This is what it's been all about. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John gives us a definition of sin right there. Sin is lawlessness. Now, nowhere in scripture are you going to find a covering for a definition of sin. We've, we've made definitions like anything contrary to the character of God. That's the definition of sin. But I, I, the reason I believe that there isn't that space in the Bible where it just gives us that definition other than sin is lawlessness here is because we have the innate capacity as human beings to take even the good things and make them sinful. We can take good things and make them wrong things quickly. And so change comes by living rightly. And look at verse five. You know that he appeared. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus going to come again? Why? He answers it in verse five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That word appeared is the idea that he came as his incarnation, that he was born fully God and fully man. And here's why he came. If someone asks, why did Jesus came? Well, John tells us that he came to take away the sins of the world. Oh, and by the way, he's sinlessly perfect. And don't forget that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God, that we might have the capacity to live rightly. Now, verse 6 is incredibly alarming. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Face value, I look at this and go, oh crap, or I say, uh, stink. That's what I say. <laughs> oh, stink. 
I'm still sinning. Am I abiding? What's John saying here? That if I abide in Christ, I'm no longer gonna sin. What is he doing here? Does he, is he looking at sinless perfection here? Is he saying that you're gonna get to a point where you don't sin any longer? Remember the context of the Gnostics. The Gnostics believe that you could do anything you want and you're gonna be untouched by sin. He's not saying that here. He's saying that when you abide, you won't want to live in a lifestyle of habitual sinning. That's what he's saying here. Inside of this context, he's saying sin should not be habitual. We should never settle into a lifestyle that is characterized by sin. Sin should be unnatural and abnormal for us. Our whole bent for our life should be to push away from sin. That should be our bent. We're not going to be perfect. Not everything has appeared in this moment as we should be. But when we stand before him, it will all be made perfect. We're not going to be made perfect. Goodness gracious, the greatest apostle and missionary in the history of the world in Romans 7 says, there's this crazy amount of wrestling taking place inside my heart. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do, I don't want to do. And he's got this massive wrestling that's taking place inside him because he's not perfect. He just knows he's a child of God. Verses 7 and 8 are a reminder that we have an enemy and he's been at work longer than you and I have been alive. He says this, here's another reason why the Son of God appeared in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now back up a little bit in verse 8 and it says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Let's just put a little quick caveat here. Um, when we mess around play with sin and don't really think of the detriment that it's going to be like you can outsmart Satan or you can out, outdo him, outthink him when it comes to sin. John's reminding us um, he's been doing this longer than you and I have been. And he comes from a place of darkness. And you don't flirt with sin and you don't play with it you're bent on pushing away sin. And then he gives this evidence that actually leads into the rest of the book. Look at verse 10. The evidence ought to be evident if you are a Christian. By this, by what? By the fact that you are a child of God. By the fact that you won't live a life of habitual sin or a life characterized by habitual sin. By this it is, here it is, evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoa. John just laid it out black and white. There is no gray area. I think that person is a Christian. I think I'm a Christian. He's saying you either are or you aren't. And that sounds really mean. And yet it's the most loving thing God could say to us. Either be a child of God or be a child of the devil. John wrote this in Revelation. I'd rather that you be cold or hot than a lukewarm Christ follower because I'll just spew you out of my mouth. I'd rather you be cold or hot. John is saying that Christians make themselves known as children of God by doing what is right or living rightly 
and by loving their brothers. Look at verse 10. By this is the evidence that you are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Then he uses this negative statement. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the opposite of that, if you're a child of God, whoever does practice righteousness, you are of God because of your relationship with Jesus, and you are one who loves your brother. Here's where it lays out again. This is the theme of 1 first, of John. Love God, love others. Not because I first loved him, but because he first loved me and sent his son to be the savior of the world. I love others. It's a call to loving others. You should close your Bibles and I feel like what John has done here in this text is he has, a, he has actually explained my life verse. Philippians 1.6, I have it memorized in the New American Standard. It's a little bit different in, um, in the ESV. I have it memorized in the New American Standard. If I could do it in the ESV, it would sound something like this, but I am sure of this. You can be confident I'm going to do it in the in the. I'm going to do it in the American Standard because I want. This is how. I, be confident. Is it up there in the? It is. This is the ESV. I have it and be confident of this: that he who began a good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what has happened here is I am sure of this: that if I'm a child of God, I can say that God has begun a good work in me, and He's not done. Oh man. He's not done. He's going to do, he's going to continue to work on me and change me to be more like him, to be more like Jesus up until Jesus comes back. I'm not done. I'm not overcooked. I'm undercooked. God's still working on me. And when we're transformed by the love of God, the love of God that he has for us, it should direct us to worship. It should direct us to be amazed by who he is, in total awe of who he is. It should cause us to cherish our adoption by him. I know that it's kind of a hard concept to grasp, but it should, we should desire purity, to live a life of purity through him and to practice living rightly simply because of him. And all of that should lead us to loving others. And this is where John takes us next in the rest of the book of 1 John. We have to ask two really important questions today. The first one is this, are you a child of God? John lays it out clearly, child of God or child of the devil? Which one? And if you are not a child of God, I, today, before even the second service, I would love to talk with you and share how you can be adopted by God. Because he loves you unconditionally. It doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't, you, could, you could bring the most heinous atrocities before him. And those are all forgiven. Those will all be forgiven before him. And you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second question is, if you're a child of God, what evidence is evident? In your life, if you would stand here and say in front of everyone else, I am a child of God, what evidence is evidence? Evident. 
Are you excited that Jesus is coming back? Are you excited that Jesus is coming back? Are you, thank you. Are, are you amazed by him? Do you want to live differently? I do. I don't want to be the same Christian I was 46 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus. So maybe you're a new Christian, but I'd actually like to talk just real quickly for those that have been Christians for a long time. I got in 46 years on this relationship with Jesus, still not cresting near the top of this mountain. If you've lost the wonder and excitement of the salvation of Jesus in your life and the fact that behold what manner of love the Father has given to you. If you've lost that wonder, reread all of 1 John and recapture the wonder and the excitement that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and that you are a child of God with unconditional love and find a deep place of joy that you're not near the mountain, the top of the mountain, and I'm not near the top of the mountain. None of us are perfect in here. We're forgiven, and we're persevering after Jesus. And I want to encourage you, as, as I pray, that you'd be praying. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I would love to talk to you. If you do, but you've found yourself in kind of that mundane uh, life is normal, dispassionate about the fact that Jesus is coming back, let's uh, ruminate on that a little bit today. I know it'll be easy to do a lot of other things today. Let's spend some time ruminating on that fact and on that truth, okay? Would you-